welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Hi, and welcome to episode four of Quaker Faith and Podcast. I'm Mackenzie, and I'm here with my co-host, Micah. Today, we are looking at the section of the book, Traditional Quaker Christianity, that is titled Righteousness, Holiness, and the Power of God. Uh, this section looks a little at um, Thomas Evans in his A Concise Account of the Religious Society of Friends, commonly called Quakers, and at Lewis Benson's Catholic Quakerism. Uh, in Benson's Catholic Quakerism, he describes two different possible um, ethics. These are two ethics you can have in a religion. Um, they are the ethic of idealism and the ethic of obligation. And just, just a word about Benson's Catholic Quakerism. It's not what it sounds like. It's not about Quakers who are Catholic or Catholics who are Quakers. It's, uh, I, I, I think I saw the manuscript renamed uh, a few years ago as Universal Quakerism or something like that. Uh, a uh, universal Christian faith. A universal Christian faith. There you go. Um, but uh, his, his, his sort of thrust in that, in that book is the idea that Quakerism is not um, is not a denomination, it's not sort of a sub-movement of Christianity, but that it's actually an attempt to recapture what Christianity is truly about. And that uh, in, in Benson's view, uh, orig original or, or, or early Quakerism uh, was true, was, 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 I mean, basically I think from his perspective, was the true church. Um, and is not is not merely sort of a, a denominational subset of the church. So it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, uh, ideologically aggressive piece of writing, uh, which I found enjoyable when I read it, but also could I'm sure could freak a lot of people out because it, it basically insists Quakerism is like well Quakerism is real Christianity. So uh, <laughs> for, take so that basically for he agrees with the early friends that they were the primitive church revived. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and of course, with with the implication that other churches aren't, you know, maybe the true church. So right. Which I mean, yeah. it, when we get back to it, makes it very Catholic. <laughs> well, the word Catholic does mean universal, so that's why at the uh, end of the Nicene Creed, they say "Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church." Yep. Um, well, anyway, so um, the idealism versus obligation thing here. Um, Idealism, he's describing as being that you have an ideal world that you're working toward. And so um, you, see there, you see a gap between what you know you're supposed to do and what you can actually do because you have to wait for the whole world to progress forward in that way mm -hmm. toward the ideal. As opposed to the ethic of obligation where he talks about um, that there's a call to righteousness and that is to do something or to not do something based on what God has told you and that you can obey that. Um, you know, we talked in the last episode uh, about perfection and about you know, the idea that you can uh, listen to what the light is telling you to do and then go do that, that you will not be um, told to do more than you have the light you know, th that you only be commanded what you have uh, a measure of light to fulfill. Right. And I, I think that uh, I, I, can actually, I can actually sort of see it both ways. I think, I think I, both, ideal, both a, a moral uh, or an ethic of idealism, meaning uh, we see the world that we believe should be and we try to move forward, but realize we try to move forward towards it, but realize that we are not there yet. 
um, as opposed to an um, ethic of obligation, which is that uh, basically don't concern myself too much with what's going on in the world, but instead focus on what specifically God is calling me to do right now. Um, I really, I really see both, uh, and and uh, you know the fact is we don't live in the world that uh, that Jesus uh, calls us to, that God has created for us, but 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 it's a twisted world, and it's a world we 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 have twisted through our sin and rebellion against God, and so we live in this broken world. We live in a world of wars and famine and uh, you know evil governments and theft, murder, anything. I can go on for hours about everything that's wrong with the world. Um, yes, Micah, go ahead and list every sin. Let's list every sin. <laughs> and next week, we'll continue listing the sins. Um, <laughs> um, but so we live in this, we live in this uh, objectively broken world. I, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it, it would take a person in a completely different headspace than I can imagine to say the world is perfect just as it is. Um, I don't know anyone who thinks that. Uh, the, but on the other hand, uh, there, there, and, and so that, that, that gives rise to idealism in the sense that we can see all these things that are wrong. And so it makes sense. It, it, is, it is reasonable um, to want to move as a society towards a better world um, and seek improvements in the way things are. On the other hand, uh, we're ultimately, you know, as individuals and even as communities, we're not in control um, of how the world is, and, and of course, you know, the Lewis Benson and the, the authors of this of this book, uh, who are friends from Ohio Yearly Meeting, would say, well, we don't have, you know, even society doesn't have control over how society is, because because society is enthralled to sin and death, and therefore society, this is how society is, and only God can make it right. So. For, from from Benson's perspective, and I think from the perspective of the writers of this book, um, the ethic of obligation gives us an opportunity, um, and, and they would say this is the ethic of the early friends, um, the ethic of obligation gives us the opportunity to say, well, the world is deeply, deeply screwed up, uh, and there's maybe nothing we can really do about that. However, in each moment, we are given an opportunity, I, I as an individual, and I think, I think friends in Ohio early meeting would say we as a community, uh, have the opportunity to do things differently in our own lives, in my life as an individual, in our life as a community, and to make change in that way. And not to do so because we believe that we can change the world, but instead to do so because we believe that this is how Jesus has called us, and we are seeking to be obedient regardless of the outcomes. I want to give one example of where this uh, plays out, and I know that this is going to be, I was skimming through the book today, and I know this is going to be covered later on in the book as well. Um, Therefore, we will cover it in a later podcast. But an example of uh, perhaps a difference between an idealistic view and an obligation view uh, is uh, with uh, the traditional Quaker stance on, uh, depending on how you look at it, refusal to engage in war, or more recently, many friends have taken a stance of nonviolence, which is a step beyond uh, non-participation in war, but actively actively resisting uh, or, or refusing to take part in violent systems. But in either way, uh, whether it's the refusal to participate in war or the refusal to participate in violent systems altogether, uh, there is a an obligation understanding of this. There's also an idealist understanding of this. The idealist understanding um, is going to sound something like we believe in a world free of war and therefore we are going to work to reduce violence uh, and to become more peaceful people. Um, 
And that reminds me that in the 1660 peace testimony, um, it says that we live in the life and power that takes away the occasion for all war. Right. Um, and so uh, the, the obligation perspective, instead of saying, uh, how can we move the world towards this objective that we believe God's calling us to, but instead says, uh, I as an individual or we as a Christian community are called by Christ not to to do or not to do certain things, and therefore we should do or not do them. So, for example, um, you know, when when the when the early when the early friends uh, gave uh, gave their reasons for not participating in war, they did not justify it on humanitarian concerns. They did not say, "Well, we you know we believe that uh, killing other people is attacking that of God and other people." We don't believe. Uh, they didn't say, "We believe that you know we will live in a, in a healthier and more loving society if we refuse to take up arms." They said the spirit. They said the spirit of Christ has commanded us not to engage in warfare, and therefore, uh, what he has once commanded, he's not going to change his mind on. Right. There's a tract published by New York Yearly Meeting, and it was written by John Edminster, that's titled, Jesus Christ Forbids War. Right. And so so the obligation perspective, um, in theory, I, I think these two perspectives are able to coexist, and I, do, and I also believe they're part of a spectrum. But in theory, a pure obligation perspective would have no interest in justification. It's, it's irrelevant. Uh, whether if from the from the pure obligation perspective, it is irrelevant what the outcomes would be. If you could prove objectively that going to war would result in fewer deaths and better outcomes for the world, the the obligation perspective would say it doesn't matter. We must do what Jesus told us. The obligation perspective is also the one you find like you know if you asked a Jew, well, why can't you eat pork? Um, because God says so. That's why. Like there isn't you don't need to justify something about you know healthy eating. Oh, um, I mean, you could look at Friends history and look at um, the push to ban slavery among Friends, right? So we came to the conclusion, thanks to John Woolman's prodding, um, that we were forbidden to own slaves, right? But the idea that we should then get the law involved and prevent other people from owning slaves was much more controversial and even led to a lot of disownments in the early 1800s because that was more of an idealist view than a personal obligation view. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good example. And not to say it was easy to get, um, I believe it was Philadelphia Yearly Meeting in 1776, uh, finally minuted that you could not be a member of the Yearly Meeting and own slaves. Uh, now granted, that was 100 years before the rest of the country caught up and said, we as a country are not gonna allow anyone to own slaves. But it took a long time from John Woolman's work to that, that point where they as a community could say that. So it was not easy. But uh, the, it, it, was, it was based on a sense of uh, corporate responsibility. I, I actually haven't studied that enough to know whether it was purely obligational or whether it was idealist. I, I again, suspect that it was both. I mean, when I read uh, you know, statements from John Woolman about why he did what he did, it certainly seems idealist to me in terms of uh, him, him essentially making a, a statement. So for those who aren't aware of John Woolman, John Woolman um, is sort of the original conscious consumer, and he would intentionally serve part of his prophetic action as he would go around uh, to, you know, when he was traveling in the ministry and say he was visiting a Quaker family that had slaves, he would insist 
on paying the slaves for their labor while he was there, and he would not accept their labor for free, and things like that, which basically shamed the families he stayed with for owning slaves. Um, he did things like he was famous for wearing undyed clothing because uh, the dyes that were used to, to, to give pigment to clothing in those days were made in the West Indies, which were basically slave factories uh, where slaves you know, could only survive for a couple of years before they keeled over and died because of the horrendous conditions. Um, and for the same reason, he wouldn't use sugar and a variety of other products that came from the West Indies. So, um, yeah, John, John Woolman, uh, to me, really does strike me as an, ideal, an idealist character. But I think that he felt like he was obligated to pay for the labor, right? And that um, he could not be righteous and um, have those goods. Uh, so, yeah, there's an aspect, of, I mean, there's certainly an aspect of, of shaming the... Um, slave-owning Quakers of the time, but there's also that I think it's, he was trying to show them that they are also obligated to not partake of slavery. And then when we get into abolitionism, it gets really complicated because there's all these questions about, um, you know, can we tell other people that they are also obligated? Um, can we participate in politics? And as we mentioned earlier, um, early friends believed that they were the true church and that everyone else was not. And can we work with people who are what they would consider apostates um, to to um, ban slavery? And it just gets very, uh, very complicated and resulted in a bunch of people getting disowned for working on abolitionist societies. And but, you know, we can also think of a pretty clear example of Quakers getting into the idealism thing where it did not work out as nice as we would have hoped, right? If you look at prohibition, you know, we believe, um, at the time at least, we believed we were obligated to um, not distill liquor, to not consume spiritist liquors, etc. Um, if you look at the old disciplines, you can see it. But then we got involved in a movement to make um, alcohol illegal nationwide, and that resulted in the mafia gaining a whole lot of power, which obviously was not a move toward a better world. So there's there's definitely a possibility of outrunning the guide when you are looking at um, idealism and of um, not predicting negative consequences. So before before we started uh, recording this this episode, uh, Mackenzie and I were talking a little bit about, uh, I think I brought up libertarianism and the idea of Quaker libertarianism. And it's really actually, um, so hear me out before you, immediately you're thinking libertarianism, you're thinking Ron Paul, but that's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about Quaker libertarianism, or you could even say um, Quaker slash Anabaptist libertarianism, because this is also present, I think, among many of the Anabaptist traditions like Amish and Mennonites and Brethren, um, there's this idea that it's not an individual libertarianism where each individual gets to do whatever they want and no one else should step on their property rights. Um, the, the Quaker Anabaptist uh, tradition of, of libertarianism, so to speak, uh, is uh, this idea that um, it's up to communities uh, to live out uh, their ideals as best they know how, and giving, giving quite a bit of leeway to communities to make those determinations. And so I think you saw that um, in the in in the in the in the in the early in the early Quaker movement, the first generations of Friends, I think you saw it in the Pennsylvania colony, um, of Quakers accepting that that it wasn't their job to change the world; it was their job to change their own communities. That was the foundation of the Quietist movement, which started um, in 
uh, in, I want to say, it was sometime, I'm forgetting exactly when actually, but it was sometime in the 1700s when um, the colonial government uh, demanded that uh, Pennsylvania raise a militia to fight the French and Indian Wars. And uh, Quakers were in power then. Quakers had a majority in, in the legislature in Pennsylvania at that point, in the General Assembly. And they left power in mass and gave it up so that they would not have to comply with the Crown's orders. Now, of course, that meant someone else did co comply with the Crown's orders, and whoever was left in power, but the Quakers did not. And so that was, that, that's, that was the beginning of quietism, um, and that was the beginning of, of a period of, of really living out this idea that um, communities should do what is right, uh, even if the world is going to do something else. Um, and refusing to participate. So it sort of was a new a new moment because up until that point, Quakers had been extremely engaged in politics and in wielding power. Mm -hmm. And um, what you, you know, you mentioned the Amish and that reminded me of a bit that I was reading um, written by D. Elton Trueblood, where um, he says that since they are satisfied to leave other people alone, Human beings who reside beyond their restricted borders are not their concern at all. The Amish, with all their hard work and reliability, have wholly missed the New Testament emphasis upon the necessity of becoming a leaven in the world. Instead, they provide the contemporary observer with one of the clearest examples of the contrasting conception of the role of the small group, that of remnant. If the purpose of religion is to encourage people to tend their own gardens and to keep themselves unspotted from the world, the Amish are one of the finest examples of pure religion we know. Uh, I should note that I pretty sure there's some sarcasm there because true blood is absolutely yeah. not in favor of um keep to yourself and hydrolite under a bushel type of uh living he's uh absolutely fond of um going out and saying uh you know he, he has a missionary fervor to him yeah yeah i was here i was definitely hearing that sarcasm there and and not viewing the amish as an ideal um which is funny because so many I people do say, well, um, uh, so many people have a superficial yes. understanding of who the Amish are. Um, so I, I don't think it's even fair to say they, they know what they're talking about. But I will tell you this. Um, the, the group that wrote this book that we're, that we're sort of working through, Ohio Yearly Meeting, a number of people, certain, probably not even the majority, but, but a number of influential people in that yearly meeting um, do have quite a bit of contact uh, with either the Amish or with uh, Old Order Mennonites who are similar in some ways mm -hmm. to the Amish. And there is a strong influence. There is a strong influence. And that, that, that seeps into their Quakerism, uh, just as surely as evangelicalism seeps into evangelical Friends Church or uh, humanism seeps into Friends General Conference. And so it's from this sort of Anabaptist flavor uh, that, they, the, that the sort of uh, quietist retreat from the world uh, obligational perspective is really strengthened uh, in this group. Right. And I think that there is uh, a need for some hybridization of these ethics as opposed to um, all or nothing. Because you know, if you think about it, um, Jesus says in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And so, um, you know, the view that I think a lot of Quakers take is that we are supposed to be building the kingdom, right? And you know, plenty of churches have hymns along those lines, you know, bring forth the kingdom of mercy, all those, um, which I think goes back on the idealism direction. You know, if we're supposed to be building heaven here on earth, that's idealism. 
Yeah, and I, and I'll I'll admit, like, uh, you know, I've I've been saying this whole program that I think, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not comfortable necessarily with one or the other, and I think and I agree with you. I think we need a hybrid. Um, the hymns about the hymns about building the kingdom of God. I've always been bothered by the term building the kingdom of God, uh, because uh, I'm going to just get off my own little rant here. Uh, my understanding of the kingdom of God is that it's 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 a pre-existing reality. The kingdom of God is wherever God is present and obeyed. So wherever God is and wherever we are in right relationship with God, that's the kingdom. And so I guess uh, that is a more obligational perspective that I have, is that I don't think we can build the kingdom of God. I think the kingdom of God is something we submit ourselves to and that pours out through us and is manifest in our relationships. So the idea of building the kingdom of God doesn't really make sense to me because either we're going, it, it is, the kingdom of God is, it is here and it's alive and it's, it's powerful. And we are either going to live in it or we're not, but whether whether it is built or not has nothing to do with us. Um, I guess it's, I, I think there's there's also a perspective sometimes of there be, of it being an emerging reality, and sort of how close within our grasp is it, and do we do things that bring it closer or things that push it further away? Yeah, I I, I think I think that's right. I think um, I think that's what um, you know. Another thing this chapter talks about is holiness and i think that's what holiness is about we can we can choose to live uh more or less holy lives that is lives that are more or less uh in in, in sync for our lives so in that sense i think i do think we can live more or less fully into the kingdom of god i just i just sort of um object a little bit to the idea that that, that we can construct the kingdom of god as, as if it weren't a pre-existent reality mm-hmm. I guess um, a common way of saying it, especially when you start looking at the uh, names of various committees, is advancing the kingdom. Yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be more comfortable with advancing language, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> so we should probably look at uh, we we discussed before we started recording uh, which are the questions we would like to look at, and um, one of them was. Uh, asking whether we agree that a life of holiness is a quote-unquote indispensable obligation for those who seek to follow Jesus, uh, or seek to you know, follow, follow Christ, delight, etc. Um, but then they ask further, when we're ask, answering that, what do we consider the life of holiness to mean? I think this is difficult, um, and I think John Woolman. The reason John Woolman, uh, who we keep referencing, and if you if you haven't ever heard of John Woolman, just go look up it, look it up on Wikipedia. I'm sure there's a good article about him. Um, but John Woolman was a revolutionary in that he was. I'm, I'm sure there were other people who moved along the same lines, but he was he was one of the original people that had this concept of um, systemic injustice, and it's not it's not simply that like it's not good enough that I don't personally own a slave if my clothing is made by slave labor and my, you know, in modern terms, you know, it's not good enough for me to say, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, burn garbage in my backyard and pour, pour oil down in the sewers if I'm getting on an airplane, if I'm driving a car, because those two are destructive, you know, through a systemic perspective, those are destructive acts. Uh, that I'm participating in as a member of the society. Right. And and when you like look at Woman's journal, um, it starts out with him uh, asked to write a will for a dying man, and in it, the guy is leaving his slave to someone, and you know, to his son or whatever. And 
woman does it and then realizes that he shouldn't have that he feels that he was disobedient in doing it and and he had rationalized doing it with well but i mean if i don't do it someone else will write the will anyway um and so that's absolute yeah right. we were saying before about the obligation versus idealism involving women and anti-slavery movement among friends and yeah. um you know that's absolutely him being in an obligation position where he's saying he knows that somebody will write the will for the person but he doesn't want to get his hands dirty mm -hmm. with it yeah I, I i think that you know that that episode is so revealing about how systemic injustice works because uh all of us uh just by virtue of living in this world all of us participate in injustice basically on a daily basis whether we want to or not and that's and that's something that uh that's something that's troubling I, I mean it's not troubling for me i think it's troubling for most people of conscience that there seems to be no way to get past uh the injustice that we're caught up in we're in this web uh of things right and I think actually that's sometimes when people idealize the Amish, it's because they they have the incorrect belief that um, the Amish, by virtue of their lifestyle, have stepped out of those systems. But, you know, they get the fabric. Sure, their, their dresses aren't made in a sweatshop, but the fabric for it comes from the same factories that all the rest yeah. of our clothes come from. They generally wear poly cotton. It's not like it's all natural fibers that they grew in the backyard and then wove themselves. No, it's... It's their, you know, their clothing by and large is made up an awful lot of petrochemicals. And withdrawal just like has ours. its own consequences. Uh, to not participate is a vote. Uh, and so, I mean, particularly, I mean, this is something uh, Mackenzie and I were talking about a little bit before. Like, uh, frankly, uh, withdrawal uh, for white people is an act of privilege. Um, and just to withdraw from, from systems of, of injustice and say, well, we're not participating. Um, frankly, for people who are who are historically and in present day in positions of privilege and power, that's not acceptable. Uh, we we have an obligation, so to speak, to uh, participate in uh, restoration um, and, and and justice. So, it's, 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 from my perspective, it's it's um, to walk away is is an act of is an act of um, destructive privilege. Right. Although I guess we still didn't really answer, um, I mean, I, so to actually answer the yes, no question that is in the book, I'm going to go with yes, I think that, um, that, that, that obedience is an absolute obligation. Um, but I also realize that, um, you know, most of us don't make it. Yeah, and and, I, um, and then we're supposed to answer what's what what we consider life of holiness to mean. And I mean, I think it would mean that you do follow the light um, in all things, and and you don't resist it. And we can all try. Well, and and again, <laughs> I, I don't I don't. Well, yeah, and, and I think and I think it. I think that's exactly the attitude that the authors of this book. Uh, and, and George Fox himself would push back against and say, well, if you're not living a life of holiness, then you're not, uh, you're not really a Christian. And I think that's, I think that's really, um, I think that's a, a dilemma because we all, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's impossible to live a life of holiness, uh, but to live a life of holiness 
there's no doubt that it requires you to be truly radical. So what I usually think of as as the sort of mitigating factor and sort of where grace comes into this is um, points for trying. So it's one thing to um, be mindful and know what you're supposed to do and willfully disobey and something else to have not been paying attention to start with and then realize after the fact that you screwed up. And, you know, when you do that latter one, that's, you're supposed to apologize, right? Because, you know, you're standing in line at the bank and you step on the person, you, you take a step backwards, you step on the toes of the person behind you. You know, you didn't intend to step on their toes, but you did. And so you apologize and, um, you know, that's where, you know, acknowledging and atoning for sin comes in. Yeah. And I mean, I, I could be alone in this, it's possible, but I suspect I'm not alone in this. I am involved in all kinds of things in my life that I know aren't right. I mean, I live in Washington, D.C. I drive a car. Uh, I fly on airplanes from time to time. Uh, I, I pay taxes to an imperialist government. Uh, I do all sorts of things on a regular basis uh, that I know aren't right, and I still do them. And I don't see I don't see clear how I'm not going to how I'm going to stop doing them, and so, you know I, I I wonder what you know I wonder what the authors of this book uh, would say to me right now, um, but I don't I don't know how you I don't know I don't know how anyone living in our society can look at themselves and say I am living a life of holiness, because we all are do, like I won't say we all I and I believe most of us are doing things that we know aren't right. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, it's the fact that we are able to name a very small number of people who we can say, you know, this person was so, so, so far outside the norm, but um, that we think that that is mm -hmm. evidence of their righteousness, like John Woolman or Benjamin Lay, that is itself an indictment and, of the rest of us. Uh, to be a little, to be a little bit bold here, perhaps an indictment of Quaker theology, because the promise of Quakerism is that we, the promise of Quakerism is that we can, we can be holy, we can be righteous, we can be right before God, and we can be perfect morally. Um, and I don't see it. I don't see it. Not in practice. So where does that leave us? Uh, as, as you know, if you and I are, are inspired by, by the early Quakers uh, and their, their passion for holiness and truth, um, where does that leave us? The reality that, you know, the older, the older I get, the less holy I think I am. So we had just been talking about question number three in the book. And question number four actually um, refers back to the previous chapter, the previous podcast we did about the um, measure of light or the amount of grace and I think kind of ties into with what I was saying about points for trying um, because it's, it's saying how uh, Lewis Benson echoes um, Pennington's assertion that God gives sufficient grace for what he has required of us and so I suppose there could be the idea that not every well okay there is the idea that not every person has the same uh, requests or commands laid I mean, on I think I think that's, you, you can justify that with scripture in terms of Jesus didn't ask the same things of everyone that he encountered. 
Um, he didn't. He did not, uh, as a matter of fact, ask everyone he encountered to give away all their possessions and give the money to the poor. Um, when he encountered a, a tax collector, um, who you know, he he called he called this, and I, I feel like he used the tax collector's name, and I can't remember it. But Zacchaeus he, from the tree. It was Zacchaeus. It, it was Zacchaeus. Of course, it was Zacchaeus. So when Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, who was who was a notable sinner, a really rotten scoundrel who cheated people out of their money, um, and was a collaborator with the Roman occupiers. Um, when Zacchaeus greeted Jesus and invited him, and Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, um, Zacchaeus announced, I'm Congratulations, going... Congratulations, I'm your dinner guest. That's right. And, and uh, Zacchaeus uh, publicly announced that he was going to repay everything. He, he, was, he was going to repay everything uh, that he had stolen, I think, four times over. I thought it was eight times. It was some amount of times. And, and Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. Right? But, and so he didn't say, hey, you need, oh, oh, because the other thing that Zacchaeus said, he said, I'm going to repay everything I stole, like, so, so many times over, and I'm going to give half my money to the poor. Um, and Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. And he didn't say to Zacchaeus, but then, well, you, you got to give everything. on the other hand, right. right, on the other hand, the rich young man asks, well, what more should I do beyond uh, obeying the commandments? And Jesus' answer is, take all that you have, sell it, and give everything to the poor, which the rich young man is not willing to do. Um, and so that's, um, you know, if you look at this ethic of obligation, that is pretty obviously a test of the um, guy's obedience. Right. So, dip the, you know, with Jesus, it is, it is apparently different strokes for different folks. Shall we end on that note? All right. So um, I hope you found this interesting. If you have any comments on it, we invite them on the website, which is quakerpodcast.org or on our Facebook or Twitter accounts. We will be back in two more weeks with um, section 2A of the book, uh, Making Use of Scripture. So we'll be talking more about the place of Scripture in Quakers. And one thing I would say, if you're still listening, you're dedicated. And so for those who are still listening here at the very tail end of the podcast, if you have particular questions that you would like us to answer, um, particularly if you if you have any chance to get a hold of this book and look at what we're going to be, what, what did you say what our next topic is? Can yes, you say it again? Uh, making use of scripture. Okay. So if you've got any particular questions about making use of scripture and what, what, from a Quaker perspective, the proper use of scripture is, send us those questions and we will, we will do our best to answer them in the next podcast. You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, on Twitter as Quaker Faith, on Facebook, and on iTunes. 